I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Oh, hello, and welcome to the Leaves of Glen Mansion. It's a fun little bit where I pretend to live in a mansion and not just recording in my basement. This is where I, I, read, the, I read the hottest public domain books and short stories. This week, I'm going to continue to read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Uh, Charles Dickens, you want to learn about him? Sure you do. Uh, he was born the 7th of February, 1812, and died the 9th of June, 1870. I don't know why I feel like this is important. I put it at the beginning of every episode, whatever the author's birth and death dates are, and I don't know why that's important. Uh, I guess I just want to celebrate the fact that I'm still alive, and they're not. English writer, social critic, and human jerk to his wife and kids, he created some of the world's best-known fictional characters and is regarded by many as the greatest novelist of the Victorian era and a fantastic asshole to the people around him. Uh, his works enjoyed unprecedented popularity during his lifetime, and by the 20th century, critics and scholars had recognized him as a literary genius, yeah. and his novels and short stories are widely read today. Uh, also interesting to note, apparently he had a bad childhood, but I don't think that excuses how he treated his wife and his children. Want to learn some fun facts about the author? Sure. Uh, let's learn about how he really felt about his kids from grunge.com. Charles Dickens wrote frequently and expertly about childhood. The author had four children by the time he was 30 years old, per the Daily Beast. I don't know why I have to read that part out loud. And according to On This Day, that's another one I shouldn't have read out loud, that was the number he wished to stop at. Uh, it begins to look serious, I'm afraid, he wrote a few years later, when the number was up to eight. Uh, Dickens ultimately... That was via the Daily Beast. Uh, Dickens ultimately had ten children. His eldest son went on to become a magazine editor. Two of his sons joined the armed forces. And two others moved to Canada and Australia, respectively. Each of the Dickens' sons, except the eldest, attended school in France. As Dickens required his uh, children to excel... I just called him Dickens. Required his children to excel at the French language. His eldest daughter, Mamie played the piano well, but drank too much and never married. Another daughter, Kate, took the art world by storm, first as a painter's model, and then as a painter's wife, and finally as a painter herself. So, how did Dickens, who wrote so whimsically about childhood in the Victorian era, feel about his own children? Here's what's known. Uh, Dickens had great expectations, in quotes, <laughs> for his own children. According to the Daily Beast, God dang it, I keep reading that part out loud. Charles Dickens was a doting father when his children were young. He organized theater performances and picnics. But he didn't mind too much when his children interrupted while he was writing, and he even gave each child a unique nick nickname. Uh, Kate, his favorite daughter, was nicknamed Lucifer Box. Oh, that's not disturbing. Because of her fiery temper. <laughs> Once Dickens' children reach adolescence, though, the author took a step back. He wanted them to follow in his own footsteps of self-sufficiency. And even once complained that he had brought up the largest family ever known with the smallest disposition to anything for themselves by the Daily Beast. He expected his children not only to choose their own path early, but to achieve great things along that path. When his son, Henry, decided to go to university, Dickens balked at the expense and wrote that if he fails to set in earnest, I shall take him away. Dickens' own talent for ambition had gotten him as far as a writer, so he experienced, expected his children to follow the path. So basically... I grew up as a person that didn't, uh, in my family, we didn't have a lot of money. And that's fine. It's not the worst. I wasn't poor or anything. We just didn't have a lot of money. A little bit, a uh, little bit white trash. But then, um, uh, then you see, I moved to a, an affluent neighborhood when I got married and raised kids. And my God, those kids were spoiled. So I kind of understand the whole, not self-sufficiency. I'm not at a Dickens level of poverty and raising yourself up at all. That seems weird that I'm even saying this out loud. But the point is, is that, uh, man, those kids want everything. They want iPhones. 
Uh, they expect you to have giant birthday parties that cost like thousands of dollars. Uh, they want you to pay for everything. Uh, they, like one one kid. Now I'm not even reading this anymore. Now I'm just complaining about rich kids. One kid that my daughter knew. His parents. This kid's from France. I'm not kidding. The kid's name was Romeo. This kid literally. His parents would give him two hundred dollars every time he left the house. So he just paid for everything when his friends went to like Target and that kind of thing. Oh, it's a nightmare. So I didn't finish that, but uh, who cares? Uh, He didn't like his kids. I know that much. With that, why don't we go on and read the story? Stay four, the last of the spirits. Oh, the phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. And when it came near him, ah, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which this spirit moved it seemed to scatter gloom and misery. Now it was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its, its form. Again, this is him dragging out something that just say it concealed its head. Done. End of story. Nope. Its face, its form, had left nothing in it visible, save for one outstretched hand. But for this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night. Burp and separated from the darkness by which it was surrounded. Oh, he felt that he was he was tall and stately. Oh, God, I'm burping like crazy. Uh, when he, my uh, my wife uh, went back to her hometown just for 24 hours uh, to go hang out with friends. And uh, boy, boy, have I hit the white claws! So the gas is off the charts tonight. Uh, he felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. Oh, he knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come, said Scrooge. The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of things that have not yet happened, but will happen uh, before us, Scrooge pursued. Is that so, spirit? The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds as if the spirit had inclined its head. Yet that was the only answer he received. Although well used to ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that, that, his, uh, that his legs traveled beneath him, and he found that he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow. All the spirit paused a moment uh, as observing his condition and giving him time to recover. Uh, but, Scro- but, uh, but Scrooge was all the worse for this. Oh, it thrilled him with vague, uncertain horror to know that, but that thrilled him. Behind the dusky shroud, there was, a, there was ghostly eyes uh, intently fixed upon him, while he, although he, he stretched his own uh, to the utmost, could see nothing but a spectral hand and one heap of black. Ghost of the future, he exclaimed. <laughs> I fear you more than any specter I've seen. But as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear you company and to do it with a thankful heart. Uh, will, you, will you not speak to me? It gave him no reply, and the hand was pointed straight before them. Lead on, uh, yeah, said Scrooge. Lead on. Oh, the night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come toward him, and Scrooge followed the shadow in its dress, which bore him up, and he thought, oh, he carried him along, and they scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city, rather, seemed to spring about them, huh, and encompass them on their own act. Oh, they were there, the heart of it, uh, the, on change amongst the merchants, who hurried up and down and chinked the money in their pockets and conversed in groups and looked on their watches and trifled thoughtfully with their great gold seals and so forth as Scrooge had seen them often. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of businessmen, observing that the hand was pointed to them. Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. No, said a great fat man with a monstrous chin. Jesus, what a dick. I don't know, I'm a, uh, I don't know much about it either way. I only know he's dead. I mean, uh, when he died, cried the other. Uh, last night, I believe. Why, uh... Uh, "'What was the matter with them?' asked the third, taking a vast quantity of snuff out of a very large snuff box. "'I thought he'd never die.' "'God knows,' said the first with a yawn. Uh, what, "'What has he done with his money?' asked the red-faced gentleman with a pendulous uh, excrescence on the end of his nose. "'What the hell is that?' "'Well, thank God for the Kindle. We're going to look up what excrescence is.' 
excurvescence, a distinct outgrowth on a human or animal body or on a plant, especially one with the result of disease or abnormality. Oh, so he's just a diseased man. On the end of his nose, it uh, shook like the gills of a turkey cock. (laughs) I haven't heard, said the man with the large chin, yawning again. Left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me. That's all I know. Well, this pleasantly was received with a general laugh. And it's likely to be a very cheap funeral, said the same speaker, for upon my life, I don't know of anybody to go to it. Suppose we, we make up a party and volunteer? I don't mind going if a lunch is provided, observed the gentleman with the extravescence on his nose, but I must be fed if I make one. Another laugh. <laughs> well, I'm the most disinterested among you, after all, said the first speaker, for I never wear black gloves, and I never eat lunch, What? and I'll never offer to go if anyone else will. When I come to think of it, I am not at all sure that I wasn't his most peculiar friend, for we used to stop and speak whenever we met. Bye-bye. Speakers and listeners strolled away and mixed with other groups. Scrooge knew the men and looked toward the spirit for an explanation. The phantom glided on into a street. Its finger pointed to two persons meeting. Maybe it's not really a phantom. It's just like some kind of dummy. It's like it's in one pose the entire time. It's hand pointing out. So maybe it's just like a mannequin. Did all the Christmas ghosts get lazy and just put a mannequin in one of their places? Scrooge listened again, thinking that the explanation might lie here. He knew these men also perfectly. They were men of business, very wealthy and very important. Oh, he had made a point of always standing well in their esteem. In a business point of view, that is, strictly in a business point of view. How are you? Eh, said one. How are you? returned the other. Well, said the first, old Scratch has got his down his own at last, hey? Or so I'm told, returned the second. Cold, isn't it? Eh, seasonable for Christmas time. You're not a skater, I suppose. No, no, something else to think of. Eh, good morning. Not another word. That was their meeting, their conversation, and their parting. Scrooge was at first inclined to be surprised that the spirit would attach importance to these conversations, apparently so trivial, but feeling assured that they must have some hidden purpose, he set himself to consider what it was likely to be. Or they could uh, scarcely be supposed to have any bearing on the death of Jacob, his old partner, but uh, that was the past, and this ghost's providence was the future. Nor could he think of anyone immediately connected with himself to whom he could apply them, but nothing doubting that to whomsoever they applied, they had some latent moral for his own improvement. He resolved to treasure up every word he heard and everything he saw, and especially to observe the shadow of himself when it appeared, for he had an expectation that the conduct of his future self would have him clue if he missed, and he would render the solution of these riddles easy. He looked about in that very place for his own image, but another man stood in his accustomed corner, and though the clock pointed to his usual time of day for being there, he saw no likeness of himself among the multitudes that poured in through the porch. Uh, It it gave him a a little surprise, however, for he had been revolving in his mind a change of life, and and hoped that he would see a newborn resolution carried out in this. Quiet, dark, I got to say one thing, reading this story, uh, when you watch the Disney version, that's the that's the Bible as far as I'm concerned when it comes to this story. The Disney version, uh, there is no self-reflection by Scrooge during the process. Right now, Scrooge has already hit the point where he's like, nope, I want to be a better man. Ah, crap, I still got to see another ghost. I've already decided I want to be a better person. No, I swear to God, I'll give all my money away. I want to be a better person. I still have to see the ghost. Fine, I'll see the next ghost. So I kind of like that. It's a little more human. Quiet and dark, beside him stood the phantom with his outstretched hand. Yeah, because they put a mannequin in his place. When he roused himself from his thoughtful quest, oh, it's a quest, he fancied from his turn of hand and his situation in reference to himself that the unseen eyes were looking at him keenly, and it made him shudder and feel very cold. Oh, they left the, they left the busy scene and went to an obscure part of town where Scrooge had never penetrated before, although he recognized his situation and his bad repute. Hmm. The ways were foul and narrow, and the shops and houses wretched, and the people half-naked. Really? Just walking around half-naked? Drunken? Well, I've been to St. Paul. 
People walk around half-naked on University Avenue. Drunken, slipshod, ugly, alleys and archways like so many cesspools. Disgorged, their offenses of smell and dirt and their life upon the straggling streets and the whole quarter reeked with crime and with filth and misery. Far in this den of infamous resort, there was a low-browed beetling shop. What is a beetling shop supposed to be? I, I, I guess that it, I, I understand it's describing the shop, but what is it? it's small, it's hunched, it's got a hard shell. B- uh, below a penthouse roof where iron, old rags, bottles, bones, and greasy offal were bought uh, upon the floor within the piled up heaps of rusty keys, nails, chains, hinges, files, scales. This is where he just fills the pages with bullshit. Weights and refuse iron of all kinds. Secrets that few should like to scrutinize were bred and hidden in mountains. You know, I'm going to be reading uh, Ernest Hemingway soon. And him, oh God, he barely says a goddamn word. The hills were big. That's it. That's the end of that sentence. I can't wait for that. After reading this horse shit, I can't wait to just have a person that just goes, the guy's name was Ted. That's all you need to know. That's it. His name was Ted. Fuck off. That's what I'm looking for in the next book I have to read. Well, I still got to read Winnie the Pooh. All right, moving on. Uh, masses of corrupt... Okay, uh, all kinds of scrutinizers were bred and hidden in the mountains of unseemly wrecks. Masses of corrupted fat, sepulchers of bones, sitting in amongst wares he dealt in by a charcoal stove made of old bricks. It was a gray-haired uh, rascal, <laughs> nearly 70 years of age, who had screened himself from the old, uh, the cold air without a, without a frowsy curtaining of miscellaneous tatters hung upon a line and smoked his pipe in all the luxury of calm retirement. Burp, Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man, and just as a woman with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop, but she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too. Oh, and she was closely followed by a, a man in faded black who was no less startled by the sight of them when they had been upon their recognition of each other. Oh, after a, a short period of blank astonishment in which the old man with a pipe had joined them, and they all burst into laugh. Yeah, uh, let the chairwoman alone be the first, cried, uh, uh, cried, cried she who had entered first. Let the laundress alone be the second, and let the undertaker's man alone be the third. Look here, uh, old Joe. Uh, here's a chance. If we haven't all three met here without meaning it. Well, you couldn't have met in a better place, said old Joe, removing his pipe from his mouth. I, I, I come into the parlor. You were made free of it long ago, you know, and, and the other two eight strangers stopped till they shut the door of the shop. Oh, oh, how she, how it, how it squeaks. Oh, there isn't such a rusty bit of metal in the places along the old hinges, I believe, and I'm sure there's no such old bones here as mine. Ha! Exclamation point. Ha! Exclamation point. We're all suited to be our calling, and we're all well matched. Come. Come. Into the parlor. Come into the parlor. (laughs) The parlor was a space behind the screen of rags. The old man raked the fire together with an old stair rod and having trimmed the smoky lamp, for it was night, in parentheses, with the stem of his pipe, but it put it to his mouth again. While he did this, the woman who had already spoken threw her bundle onto the floor and sat down in a flaunting manner on a stool. Crossing her elbows on her knees and looking uh, with a bold defiance at the other two. Yeah, what odds then? What odds, Mrs. Dilber? said the woman. Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. Well, that's true indeed, said the laundress. No man more so. Why then, don't stand staring as if you were afraid. Woman, uh, who is the wiser? We're not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. No, indeed, said Mrs. Dilber and the man together. We should hope not. Well, very well then, cried the woman. That's enough. Who's the worst for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. Well, no, indeed, said Mrs. Dilber, laughing. (laughs) And if he wanted to keep him after he was dead, a wicked old screw, pursued the woman. Why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he'd been, he'd been somebody to look after him when he'd been struck with death. Instead, he's a lying gasping out there, uh, alone, by himself. That's the truest word that was ever spoke, said Mrs. Dilber. That's judgment on him. I wish it was a little heavier judgment, replied the woman, and it should have been. You may depend upon it. If I could have laid my hands upon anything else, open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. Speak out plain. 
I'm not afraid to be the first, nor afraid them to see it. We knew pretty well that we were helping ourselves before we met here, I believe. It's no sin. Open the bundle, Joe. But the gallantry of her friends would not allow this, and the man in faded black, mounting his breech first, produced his plunder. That was not expensive. Sealer two, pencil case, pair of sleeve buttons, and a, and a brooch? And a brooch? of no great value were all, and they were uh, severely exclaimed and praised by old Joe, who, who chalked the sums up as he disposed to give up on each other on the wall, and ad- just doing it on the wall, and added them onto a total when he found out there was nothing more to come. Well, that's it, that's, uh, that's your account, said Joe, and I wouldn't give another sixpence if uh, I was to be boiled for not doing it. Who's next? Mrs. Dilbert was next. Sheets and towels, uh, a little wearing apparel, uh, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs, and a few boots. Her account was stated on the wall in the same manner. I always give too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine, yeah, and it's the way I ruin myself, said old Joe. That's your account. If he asked me for another penny and made it open the question, I'd repent of being so liberal and knock off half a crown. And now undo my bundle, Joe, said the first woman. Well, Joe went down upon his knees and for greater convenience of opening it and having done fast and a great many knots, dragged out a large, heavy roll of some dark stuff. Yeah, what, do you, what the hell do you call this? They didn't say hell. I threw that in. Said Joe, hey, frickin' bed curtains? They didn't say frickin'. I put that in. Ah, returned the woman, laughing and leaning forward on her crossed arms. Bed curtains. Well, you don't mean to say that you took him down, rings and all, with him lying there, said Joe. Yes, I do, replied the woman. Why not? Well, you were you're born to make your fortune, said Joe, and you'll certainly do it. No, I certainly shan't hold my hand when I can get anything in it by reaching out for it. For, for the sake of such a man as he was, I promise you. Joe, returned the old woman coolly, don't drop that oil upon the blankets now. Uh, his blankets? asked Joe. Who else's do you think? replied the woman. Uh, he isn't likely to take cold without him, I dare say. Yeah, I hope he doesn't die of anything catching, eh? said old Joe, stopping in his work and looking up. Well, don't be afraid of that, returned the old woman. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter about him for such things if I did. Ah! exclamation point. You may uh, look, though, that shirt till your eyes ache, uh, but you won't find a hole in it. "'Nor a threadbare place. "'It's the best he had, and a fine one, too. "'All they'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me.' Uh, "'What do you call wasting of it?' asked old Joe. "'Put it on him to be buried in, to be sure,' cried the old woman with a laugh. "'Somebody uh, was fool enough to do it, and I took it off again.' "'Wow, these are just shitty people. "'Everyone in this book's shitty. "'If uh, Calico isn't uh, good enough for such a purpose, "'it isn't good enough for anything. "'It's quite as becoming to the body. "'He can't look uglier than he did in that one.' Scrooge listened to this dialogue in horror as they sat grouped about their spoil. In scanty light afforded by the old man's lamp, he viewed them with a detestation and disgust, which he could hardly have been greater, though they had been, uh, they had been obscene demons marketing the corpse itself. <laughs> laughed the same woman when old Joe, producing a flannel bag with money in it, uh, told out there there's several gains upon the ground. This is the end of it, you see. His, he frightened everyone away from him when he was alive to profit us for when he was dead. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, burp, exclamation point. Spirit! said Scrooge, shuddering from head to foot. I see, I see. The case of this unhappy man may be my own. My life tends that way now, merciful heaven. What is this? Well, just reading that reminds me of uh, another time that someone says, what is this? It was the time that a wealthy person in the affluent neighborhood I was talking about earlier in this episode, uh, had his house broken into by ruffians from the from a small town with a bunch of poor kids in it. Oh, the ruffians came in. Oh, they busted into this minor McMansion in this affluent neighborhood. And they busted in. They're like, hi, hey, give me the money. Of course, they went for the curtains. Of course, they went for the shirts and, uh, and whatever else. But they were looking for money. And when they finally did find the money... <laughs> Oh, they were prepared to crack open a safe, but all they found was a perfectly built glass box with all the money piled neatly inside it. 
And they also said, uh, uh, what is this, merciful heaven? And, uh, it turns out it was a glass box, impenetrable by man, to get that money. Uh, the person who owned this McMansion in the affluent neighborhood I was talking about earlier uh, knew that this is money I want to set aside, and the only way it can be broken open is by the government or something, or like a, a giant uh, a crane, I don't know, something like that. But these crooks could get it. And who made this glass box? Well, the sexless individual called uh, Stephen Dorglas from Dorglass Incorporated, D-O-R-G-L-A-S-S dot com. He's never gotten laid, and he spent all his time trying to figure out how to make glass things. Glass walls, glass rooms, glass safes that you can't open unless you use a giant crane or the government. They're dedicated to fabricating, professionally installing the highest quality glass products from the nation's top manufacturers. Their inventory, combined with their years of experience, make them the premier source for installation and repair. Oh, they approach every project with the same goals. Professional Professionalism, integrity, and most importantly, when you're going to make a glass box that you yourself can't even open, and definitely not a bunch of uh, uh, lowlifes from uh, neighboring uh, neighborhoods, they're discreet. What do they do? Commercial storefronts, automatic entrances, windows, patio doors, mirrors, shower doors, installation repair, and they will design and build any goddamn glass box you ask them to build. Their clients are Pottery Barn, Williams Sonoma, Sherman Williams, Portillo's, which is a sandwich shop nobody cares about, the Salt Cave, which is a place where they have Himalayan salt lamps all in this one room. I guess you just go to go stand in a room with Himalayan salt lamps everywhere. They're backlit, so it looks like you're standing inside some sort of cartoonish uh, lung or stomach. It's just throbbing, weird orange walls that you're standing in to do dumb, uh, you know, just suburban shit like a yoga and hot. They crank up the heat, hot yoga and all that sweat just sticks to the Himalayan salt walls. But the one thing they say on the website, don't touch the walls. For God's sake, don't touch the goddamn walls. Don't lick the walls. Don't put your eyeball against it by looking really closely at it because it's just probably just filled with all sorts of bacteria that they're too lazy to clean off. And Applebee's. Well, with that, why don't we retire up to the master bedroom of my mansion, uh, where we can lay out across the silken sheets of my uh, master waterbed that's heart-shaped. Sounds impossible to make a heart-shaped waterbed? Physically, with physics, don't allow you to have those weird little indents on the top and whatnot without it bursting open all the time every time you slap down on it and get buck wild. Uh, it exists, and it's got silk satin sheets on it. So with that, why don't we go up there where I can tell you about the latest in romance literature from Penguin Random House Books. Oh boy, here I come. I can't wait. This is going to be exciting. Ugh. 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 What do you dress like? I mean, you're wearing mildly normal clothes, but you got all these little veins all over your nose and around your eyes and cheeks. The hell is that? What are you, kind of rubbing your your privates against the banister of the bed? What's wrong with you? Uh, oh, you're pointing towards the book that you threw on my waterbed called Ruby Spencer's Whiskey Year. Oh, I get it. You're an alcoholic. And it's a romance book, so you're a horny alcoholic. I get it now. You got Rosacea uh, by Rochelle Billow. Yeah, that sounds fun. Uh... One of BuzzFeed romance books to look out for in 2023. That's probably better than being a New York Times best-selling author, because that's a scam. At least BuzzFeed actually knows who you are when they say that. Uh, when a 30-something American food writer moves to, Scottish, uh, to a Scottish village for one year to fulfill her dream of writing a cookbook. Ugh. She finds more than inspiration. She meets a handsome Scotsman that she can't resist in this charming debut romance. Ruby Spencer is spending one year living in a small cottage in a tiny town in the Scottish Highlands for three reasons. One, to write a best-selling cookbook. We got that. Two, to drink a barrel full of whiskey. Well, that's where the alcoholism comes in. And to figure out what comes next. That's not really one. That's not really a reason, and it's hard to know what to expect after an impulse decision based on a map of Scotland uh, in her Manhattan apartment. <laughs> but she knows it's high time that she had an adventure. 
the moment she sets foot in Thistlecross, the verdant scene the author literally just probably looked that up on a map. The verdant scenery, cozy cottages, and struggling local pub steal her heart between the designing pop-up suppers and uh, pop-up suppers and conversing with the colorful locals. Do they have pop-up suppers in Scotland? Like not a pop-up store or whatever, just like a supper, like, yeah, hey, we got food. Yeah, we're just here now. We got supper. That's weird. Ruby starts to see a future that stretches beyond her year of adventure. It doesn't hurt that Brokon, the ruggedly handsome local handyman, uh, keeps coming around to repair things at her cottage. Uh, though Ruby swore off men, nah, she can't help fantasizing what a role in the barley might be with this, with this, this bearded Scott. As Ruby grows closer to Brokan and the tightly held traditions of the charming village, she discovers secret plans to turn her beloved pub into an American chain restaurant. That sounds pretty American of you to do. Nice work. Faced with an impossible choice, Ruby must decide between love, loyalty, and the Highlands way of life. Well, Ruby Spencer's Whiskey Year sounds stupid. Uh, it's uh, by Rachel Billow. It's coming out February 14th for 17 bucks and paperback. Get it at Amazon, Barnes Noble, Books A Million, Bookshop.org, Hudson Booksellers, Indiebound, Powell's Target, and Walmart. Well, I don't want to have, uh, I don't want to make sex with an alcoholic. Uh, you're, you're depressing to look at. And you're still grinding on the banister because you can't stop thinking about a bearded man who's a, a Scottish man. Uh, so with that, why don't we go back down to the library? Hope you stop grinding on things and we can finish reading the rest of this book. Uh, there you are, and uh, you're sitting in the chair, just looking the same and just kind of humping the air. Good for you. Well, while you're humping, please try to pay attention to the story that I'm reading. Spirit, said Scrooge, shuddering from head to foot. I see, I see. The case of this unhappy man might be my own, and my life tends that way now. Merciful heaven, what is this? He recoiled in terror, for the scene had changed, and now he almost touched the bed, a bare, uncurtained bed, on which, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay something covered up, which, though it was dumb, announced itself in awful language. The room was very dark, too dark to be observed by any accuracy, though Scrooge glanced around it in obedience to his secret impulse, anxious to know what kind of room it was, and a pale light, rising in the outer air, fell straight upon the bed, and on it, plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of this man. Scrooge glanced toward the phantom. Its steady hand was pointed to the head. He's, it's the mannequin. They're just the, the ghosts are probably just moving the mannequin around, giggling to themselves. He doesn't even know it's not a real thing. It's just a stupid mannequin with a dumb hand. Its steady hand pointed to the head. The cover was so carelessly adjusted that the slightest raising of it, the motion of a finger upon Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. He thought of it, felt how easily it would be to do so, and longed to do it. But he had no more power to withdraw the veil than to dismiss the specter at his side. Oh, cold, cold, rigid, dreadful death, set up thine altar here, and dress it with such terrors as thou hast at thy command, for this is thy dominion. But of loved, revered, and honored head thou cannot turn one hair to thy dread purposes, or make one's features Odious. It is not that the hand is heavy uh, and will fall down when released. It is that the, that the heart and pulse are still, but that the hand was, in all caps, open, generous, and true. The brave heart, warm and tender, and the, the pulse of a man's. Strike, shadow, strike! And see his good deeds springing upon the wound to sow the world with life immortal. No voice pronounced these words in Scrooge's ears, and yet he heard them when he looked upon the bed. He thought, if this man could be raised up now, uh, what would be his uh, foremost thoughts? Avarice? Eh? Hard dealing? Eh? Griping cares? Question mark. Oh, they brought him to rich and truly. He lay in the dark, empty house, not with a man, or a woman, or a child, to say was kind to of me, this or that. For the memory of one kind word, I will be kind to them. A cat 
It was tearing at the door. Oh, there's the sound of gnawing rats beneath the hearthstone. Uh, what they wanted in the room of death. Oh, and why they were so restless and disturbed. Scrooge did not dare to think. Spirit, he said, this is a fearful place. I, in leaving it, I shall not leave its lesson. Trust me, let's go. Uh, still the ghost pointed with his unmoved finger uh, to the head. I understand you, Scrooge returned, and I would do it if I could. But I have not the power, Spirit. I have not the power. Again, it seemed to look upon him. If there is any person in the town who feels emotion caused by this man's death, said Scrooge, quite agonized, show that person to me. Spirit, I beseech you. The phantom spread its dark robe before him for a moment like a wing, and withdrawing it, revealed a room by daylight. Where uh, a mother and her children were. Oh, she was expecting someone, kind and anxious eagerness, for she walked up and down the room and started every sound, looked out from the window, glanced at the clock, tired but in vain, burp to work with her needle, and could hardly bear the voices of her children at play. At length, the long-expected knock was heard, and she hurried to the door and met her husband, a man whose face was careworn and depressed, though he was young. Ah, there's a remarkable expression in it now, kind of a serious delight, which he felt ashamed, and which he was struggling to repress. He sat down at the dinner that had been hoarding for him by the fire, and, and when she asked him faintly what news, which, in parentheses, was not until after a long silence, he appeared embarrassed how to answer. Eh, it's good, she said, or bad, to help him. Bad, he answered. Uh, are you quite ruined? No, there's hope yet, Caroline. If he relents, she said, amazed, there is. Nothing is past hope if such a miracle has happened. Uh, he's, he is past relenting, said her husband. He's dead. Now well, she was a mild and patient creature, and her face spoke the truth, but she was thankful in her soul to hear it. And she was so with her clasped hands, she prayed for forgiveness the next moment, and was sorry. But the first was the emotion of her heart. What the half-drunken woman whom I told you of last night said to me when I tried to see him and obtain a week's delay, and uh, what I thought was a mere excuse to avoid me, turns out to have been quite true. He was not only very ill, but dying then. Uh, to whom will our debt be transferred? I don't know, but before that time, we should be ready with the money. And even though we are not, it would be bad fortune indeed to find some merciless a creditor in his successor. Uh, we, may, we may sleep tonight with the light hearts, Carolyn. Yes, soften as they would. Their hearts were lighter. The children's faces, hushed and clustered round to hear what they had so little understood, were brighter, and it was happier house than this man's death. The only emotion that the ghost should show him, caused by the event, was one of pleasure. Let me see some tenderness connected with a death, said Scrooge, or that dark chamber spirit, which we just left now, will be forever present to me. The ghost conducted him through several streets familiar to his feet, and they went along, and Scrooge looked here and there to find himself, but uh, nowhere was he uh, to be seen. Oh, they entered the pub. Uh, oh, sorry, poor Bob Cratch's house. Not the pub, just poor Bob. Eh, my brain made it into pub. Poor Bob is just pub. Uh, uh, the dwelling he had to visit before. Oh, and he found a mother and a children seated around the fire. Quiet. Very quiet. The noisy little Cratchits were still as statues in one corner, and they sat looking up at Peter, who had a book before him, and the mother and the daughters were engaged in sewing. But surely they were very quiet, exclamation point. And he took the child and set him in the midst of them. Where had Scrooge heard those words? He had not dreamed them. The boy must have read them out as he and the spirit crossed the threshold. Uh, why did he not go on? And the mother laid her work upon the table and put her hand up to her face. Uh, the color hurts my eyes, she said. The color? Ah, uh, poor Tiny Tim. Oh, they're better now again, said Cratchit's wife. It makes them weak by candlelight. And I wouldn't show weak eyes to your father uh, when he comes home. For the world, it must be near his time. Past it, rather, Peter answered, shutting up his book. But I think he has walked a little slower than he used. For those last few evenings, mother... Now they're very quiet again, and at last she finally said in a steady, cheerful voice that only faltered once, I have known him to walk with, and I have known him to walk with Tiny Tim upon his shoulders very fast indeed. Oh, and so have I, cried Peter, often. And so have I, exclaimed another, and so had all. 
but he was very light to carry, she resumed, intent upon her work, and father loved him so that it was no trouble, no trouble, and there is your father at the door. She hurried about to meet him, and little Bob and his comforter, he had a need of it, poor fellow, came in. His tea was ready for him on the, on the, on the, on the hob, and they all try, uh, tried who should help him to it most. With the two young Cratchits got upon his knees and laid each child a little, a little cheek against his face, as if they had, don't mind it, father, don't be grieved. Bob was very cheerful with them and spoke pleasantly to all the family. He looked at the work upon the table and praised the industry and speed of Mrs. Cratchit and the girls. Oh, and they would be done long before Sunday, he said. Sunday? You went today then, Robert? said his wife. Yes, my dear, returned Bob. I wish you could have gone. Uh, it would have done you good to see how green the place is. Uh, but you'll, you'll see it often, I promised him, uh, that I would walk there on a Sunday. My little, little child, cried Bob, my little child. Night broke down all at once, and he couldn't help it. If he could have helped it, that his child wouldn't have been uh, farther apart, perhaps, than they were. He left the room and went upstairs into the room above, which was lighted cheerfully and hung with... Christmas. Oh, there was a chair set close beside the child, and there were signs of someone having been there lately. Poor Bob sat down in it, and when he had thought a little and composed himself, he kissed the little face. Oh, he was reconciled to do what had happened, and he went down again quite happily. Oh, they drew about the fire. Yeah, and talked, yeah, and the girl's mother working still. Bob told them of the extraordinary kindness of Mr. Scrooge's nephew, whom he had scarcely seen but once, and who, meeting him in the street the next day, and seeing that he looked a little, eh, just a little down, you know, said Bob, inquired what happened to distress him, uh, which, Bob, said Bob, uh, for he is the pleasant-spoken gentleman you've ever heard. I told him I am heartily sorry for it, Mr. Cratchit, he said, and heartily sorry for your good wife. By the by, how he ever knew that, I don't know. Knew what, my dear? Why, that you were a good wife, replied Bob. Everyone knows that, said Peter. Very well observed, my boy, cried Bob. I hope they do. Heartily sorry, he said, for your good wife, if I could be of service to you in any way, he said. Give me his card. And that's where I live. Uh, pray, uh, come to me. Now, it wasn't, cried Bob, for the sake of anything he might be able to do for us so much as for the kind way, and this was quite delightful. It really seemed as if he had known our tiny Tim and uh, felt with us. I'm sure he is a good soul, said Mrs. Cratchit. Oh, you, you wouldn't be sure of it, my dear, returned Bob. If you saw and spoke to him, I shouldn't be at all surprised, mark what I say, if he got Peter a better situation. Not only to hear that, Peter, said Mrs. Cratchit. And then, cried one of the girls, Peter will be keeping company with someone and setting up for himself. Get along with you, retorted Peter, grinning. Oh, he said, likely it's not, said uh, Bob. It's one of those days, though there's plenty of time for that, my dear. But uh, however and whenever we part from one another, I'm sure we shall have none of us forget poor Tiny Tim, uh, shall we, or the first parting that there was among us. "'Never, father,' cried they all. "'And I know,' said Bob, "'I know, my dears, that when we when we recollect "'how patient, how mild he was, uh, "'although he's a very little, little child, "'oh, we should not quarrel easily amongst ourselves "'and forget uh, poor Tiny Tim in doing it. "'I know, never, father,' they all cried again. "'I'm very happy,' said little Bob. "'I am very happy.' "'And Mrs. Cratchit kissed him, "'and his daughters kissed him, "'and the two young Cratchits kissed him, "'and Peter himself shook hands.' The spirit of Tiny Tim, thy childish essence, was from God. Spectre, cried Scrooge, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me, what man that was whom we saw lying dead? He haven't figured it out by now. The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him, as before, though at a different time, he thought. Indeed, there seems no order in these latter visions, save that they were in the future into the resorts of business men. But show him not himself. Indeed, the spirits did not say for anything, but went straight on to the end, just now desired until you saw Scrooge tarry on for a moment. Ah, uh, this court, said Scrooge. "'though which we hurried now is where my place of occupation is. "'It has been for a long time. "'I see the house. "'Ah, let me behold what I shall be in days to come.' "'Let him figure it out by now. "'The spirit stopped. "'The hand was pointed elsewhere. "'Oh, 
They moved the mannequin. The house is yonder, Scrooge exclaimed. Why do you point away? The inexorable figure underwent no change, and Scrooge hastened to the window of his office and looked in. It was an office still, but not his. Oh, the furniture was not the same. The figure in the chair was not himself, and the phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again, and wondering why and whither he had gone, accompanied it until they reached an iron gate and paused to look round before entering. A churchyard. Here, then, the wretched man, whose name had now to learn, lay underneath the ground. It was a worthy place, walled in by houses, overrun by grass and weeds and growth of vegetation's death, not life, uh, and choked up into too much burying, a fat with repleted appetite. A worthy place. Well, the spirit stood among the graves, pointed down to one, that's a capital O on one, and advanced toward it, trembling. The phantom... It was exactly as it had been, but he dreaded that he saw a new meaning in his solemn shape. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are, are these the shadows of things that will be? Or are they shadows of things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends in which I preserved it must be lead, but if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it thus with that you show me. The spirit was as immovable as ever. Scrooge crept toward it, trembling as he went, and following the figure, read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge, in all caps. Am I... That man who lay upon the bed, how dumb is this guy? He cried upon his knees. He was avoiding looking at the face of the man in the bed to begin with. He knew it was him. The finger pointed from the grave to him and back again. No, spirit. Oh, no, no. The finger was still there. Spirit, he cried, uh, tight clutching at its rub. Hear me. I should do that more often. If I'm going to talk to someone, like at a meeting at work, and I just go... I don't know, whoever I be talking, Stephen, hear me. And then I say, what are they? I don't think the API is working. Uh, hear me, I'm not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been. But for this intercourse, why show me this, if I am past all hope? For the first time, the hand appeared to shake. Good spirit, he pursued, as down upon the ground he fell before him. Your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I may not yet change these shadows you've shown me by my altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all year. Uh, and I will live in the past, present, and... <laughs> wink, wink, the future... The spirits of all three shall strive within me, and I shall not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. In his agony, the, he caught the spectral hand and sought to free itself, but it was strong uh, in its entreaty and detained the spirit, stronger yet repulsed him. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. Well, you think that pretty much be the end of the story, but nope, there's a whole other chapter after this, a whole other chapter I'm not reading. So with that, why don't we go back down to the smoking room and smoke cigarettes and uh, review what the hell we just read. You're just still humping the air like some kind of sex idiot. Well, uh, let's recap what happened in this story. Uh, he gets to go into the future. God damn it. He gets to go into the future, and uh, he gets to see a, a bunch of unattractive businessmen standing around talking about how someone died and how nobody cares. Then, then he gets to go... Uh, see a bunch of just random women who are like, yeah, I went to the dead guy's place and I robbed it of things like curtains and whatever else. I think they robbed it. I don't know. Uh, and so they're all proud of themselves. They got a big uh, bunch of money. Not in a glass box, but they got a bunch of money. And um, and then uh, the this ghost takes him to go see the dead man laying in bed. He's too much of a, a giant puss to go and uh, 
take a look at the dead man's face, and then they go to the Cratchit house, and they talk about whatever, and then they go back to Grave, and that's the classic from the, the Disney version of this that I watch, which is the gold standard as far as I'm concerned when it comes to the Christmas Carol. Uh, you know, Mickey Mouse, oh, I don't want to see my grave spirit, and, um, and then, you know, sees that it's him, oh, God, it's me, it's been me the whole time, and then, um, and then uh, after that, uh, he says, yeah, yeah, ghost, don't do it, whatever. And then the ghost goes away. Okay, so we got that story. Uh, what's good? Um, like I said earlier, I, you know, you don't ever see in the uh, recreations, even the even even in the Disney version, that uh, he actually has some sense of just being a normal person. It only takes one ghost for him to be like, I get it, okay, I'll change. Uh, and then, you know, ghost number two, oh, god damn it, I gotta keep doing this? All right, I said I'd change. Like, it, he's a normal person. So I do like that that's in the story. Uh, but beyond that, uh, it's just kind of the same crap you're already used to and already expecting. There's no revelations happening here. There's no uh, amazing backstory uh, to these characters that you don't get from the Disney version. Uh, and so, uh, but yeah, so then he's, you know, that's good. What sucks... I guess that it took him a long time to figure out that he's the one that's dead. I think by context clues, you can figure it out by the unattractive businessmen saying like, oh yeah, that one guy who's never friendly uh, that nobody really talks to. Oh, whenever I run into him on the street, I hate small talk with him. Uh, I would, I have a crippling, a crippling uh, sense of uh, inadequacy. I would ask to be like, oh, they're talking about me, aren't they? Oh, they're talking about me. Oh, it's old Glenn. They're talking about old Glenn again, aren't they? So, but no, not in this story. Uh, what do we learn? Nobody likes you. Uh, you could be a jerk or a nice guy. You could be a nice guy. You could die, and instead of them saying like, "Oh God, I'm glad he's gone because I never liked running into him," or they, you know, and then they still wouldn't go to your funeral, and then you go, "Oh, oh, it's old Glenn. People like old Glenn. Uh, boy, my sad he's gone. I really miss running into him." But they still wouldn't go to your funeral. People don't like you. It's okay. It's natural. Don't beat yourself up. It's fine. No one's gonna like you. You get like one or two people that you can gather around you that don't hate your presence, and you're doing. Pretty Pretty good. You're doing pretty damn good. If they actually think about you on their free time and say like, "Hey, uh, what's up?" Uh, like, uh, not much. Wow, thanks for thinking of me. You're doing really good. You're doing better than most people. So with that, uh, we got one more chapter, which I'm gonna have to release right before Christmas. And with, uh, I guess, then that'll be it. And then uh, we could do our post Christmas and uh, maybe into the New Year. Winnie the Pooh. So with that, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you in the next episode. Ah, uh, well, it appears you found me in the part of the podcast I hate the most, where I tell you all about the places on the internet where you can find me. Tell I hate this because of the sound effects making it sound like a stormy night uh, in the drawing room of the damned. Now there's there's that. Uh, I I are you cool? I like cool people. It's the reason why I got involved in this business to begin with, just to meet cool people, not losers. So if you're cool, uh, feel free to go over to my website, uh, nuzzlehouse.com. You can see a backlog of everything I've ever read including stuff like gestating the curious mind with my lady friend and also a, a little side project I'm going to be doing with my daughter. Oh, I'm on Instagram, but no one uses that anymore because they all use TikTok. Am I ever going to get on TikTok? No, but if you want to look at my dead Instagram, it's at uh, Housenuzzle. I also have Twitter, which I use the most, which is also conveniently at Housenuzzle. Uh, and since, uh, since I think you might be cool... You can always just email me directly, glenn.nuzzles at gmail.com. But don't, uh, don't email if you're a, a nerdlinger or a dork. Now, back to business. I can't believe I drank all of them already. There's got to be one left.